Good morning. How many of you, if you could raise your hands, find yourself at times memory challenged? Okay. Okay, men. Men, raise your hand and be honest, God is watching. If your wives have a better memory during a fight than you do. Okay. Oh, come on, guys. Be humble here, you know. <laughs> you know, memory's really important, isn't it? It's so important to us. Sometimes, I've thought about this, I would rather lose a limb than lose my memory. Because, you know, memory is, I mean, like, falling in love and your marriage and your children being born and... Uh, great experiences, and, you know, memory is just so necessary for our humanity and our encouragement and desire to wake up, and so, you know, it's a Memorial Day weekend. Happy Memorial Day weekend. You know, um, post-Civil uh, War, our country celebrated uh, Memorial Day in different ways. For a few decades, it was called... Uh, Decoration Day, because what would happen is people would have parties and decor the place inside and out with uh, paraphernalia of the deceased who died in the Civil War. And, and it went that way, past, uh, right past World War I, and I think that's when it started to be called Memorial Day. It became official that we had two different uh, celebrations every year, Veterans Day, November the 11th, and then our Memorial Day. You know, Veterans Day is called Remembrance Day in many parts of the Commonwealth, and it's very much like our Memorial Day. You know, um, Tricia asked me last night when I ran an illustration by her that I'm going to show you in a second. She goes, why are you so into World War II? Okay. First of all, I am not a war buff. I'm a peace buff, okay? And, uh, but, you know, over the last 3,000 years in the history of civilization, I think the three most significant events are the Christ story, the Reformation in the 16th century, and World War II. And there's all sorts of spiritual, world-changing reasons for those. But you know what? We weren't alive during a period where we could even talk to somebody who was around in, in the, the Christ story, right? We have to rely on our records. We weren't alive at the time of the Reformation. But you know what? We can know people that remember the 1930s and the 40s. And that generation is dying very quickly. And so I'd like to tell you my connection to Memorial Day. How many of you recognize this painting being in some, somewhere in some book and some history of World War II? Raise your hand. Okay, about 10 or so. It is actually a famous painting by Tom Lee. And it's interesting. Uh, I've read about this painting quite a bit. Uh, people are wondering, like, who was the subject? And we know where it was. It happened on the island of Peleliu, the last big battle before Okinawa that ended World War II. Uh, here's what we know. It was on Peleliu. It was near a ridge called Bloody Nose Ridge. And it was called that because there was a bunch of caves that were interconnected that the Japanese would hide between and have control over the island, and, the, and so a lot of skirmishes were actually person to person. So they called Bloody Nose. 
Um, the person portrayed, according to Tom Lee, was wounded in autumn of 44 on the island, and he contracted malaria. Okay, so that gives us a little bit of indication about who this person might have been. It's called the 2,000-yard stare because after somebody lost one of their best friends, they thought they wanted to stay disconnected just to finish out the war and go home. So they were going to disconnect and walk around like zombies with the blank stare. And so I stumbled across a possible answer as to who this person was. There's a man by the name of Eddie Lee Andrusco. Uh, I had a pen pal relationship with him about 10 years ago. And it happened because I was writing a Christmas play that had a Chicago connection uh, for the Chicago church, and I stumbled across his story that tied in with Chicago. And uh, he had written a number of different things, including a Christmas story. That So I got in contact with him. He lived in Boulder. And so I would send him 10 questions, and he would send me 10 answers, and we'd go back and forth by email, probably about five or ten times, and then I tried to meet with him, went out to Boulder, and he was too ill, and I couldn't meet with him on the first trip out there. But uh, on October 6, 1944, in that autumn, on the island of Peleliu, about 120 men arrived in those little crafts for a D-Day invasion on Peleliu. They expected the very worst. They expected uh, a lot of shooting and fire as soon as they would get near the beach. It didn't happen. It was dead quiet. So the 120 guys went up onto the hill. And for the next hour, Eddie, who stayed back because he was an engineer, found a Japanese uh, engineering tent with fish still frying and was told to stay with the tent and try to understand the radio uh, gear. Over the next hour, all of those men were slaughtered. And only Eddie survived. He found another group of guys to join with, and um, on October the 13th, on Hill 660, which is near Bloody Nose Ridge, like a couple hundred yards away, they're often mentioned in the same stories, and um, he, was get, he got four letters from home. They all took this hill, and then a few days later, they got their mail, and as they're reading the mail, he has four letters. The first letter was from his girlfriend. And it was a Dear John letter. She broke up with him. I know. <laughs> and the second letter was from the draft board. They got forwarded saying he's evaded the draft. What happened was he lied about his age and got in to the Marines uh, and it messed up the paperwork. So they were trying to track him down. But he was already in for over 30 months. The third letter, while he's holding it in his hand, and it's a letter from his sister back in New Jersey complaining about how hard life is, rationing and everything, he gets hit by a bullet. And I want to read this. It says, it shot across his right forearm, hit a medallion across his check, denting it, then hit his left forearm, then bounced off a rock behind him, hit him in the back before falling in a helmet. Okay, so none of these were serious injuries. He was hoping it was the million-dollar wound to go home, but it wasn't. And so what happened is he went back out into battle, but one of the wounds got infected. He contracted malaria and gangrene. His right arm turned black and purple. So anyway, um, he was wounded and so put back into action, and he contracted malaria. But then he went to a medic tent, and the tent was so full that they put him in the shade outside the tent, about 110 degrees, 
and they forgot about him. A day later, they went over and, and uh, couldn't find a pulse, put a tag on his toe, put him on a table, on a, bo- a body bag, found out which faith he was, and found a, a chaplain to come by and to do last rites. He was taken for dead. The priest was freaked out when he woke up. <laughs> and he was called Lazarus after that. So he went on a ship for six weeks called the Solace and went to San Diego where he recuperated all the way up to the holidays. And all the planes were full. He wanted to get back home by Christmas. And they said, we can get you on a free plane after Christmas, but to get there by Christmas, you need to take a train. He went to a train station. It was completely full, but a guy from Chicago named Ski gave him a seat, shared his seat with him and rotated. And that became the basis of the story that I learned about, which had a Chicago connection. And so... um, I would like to uh, tell you that the story worked out really well for him. That fourth letter, by the way, was a a letter from his ex-girlfriend saying how great things were with her new boyfriend. (laughs) But uh, Eddie lived, and he got his girlfriend back. um, But he was was quite a remarkable person. Eddie died last October. This is a picture of me that I got to finally spend time with him and his wife with our family. But, you know, he had a, it's a wonderful life and a saving Private Ryan story wrapped up in the one. And, it just you know, I just thought it was just a really nice way for me to learn in a real-world way what happened back then and to be very grateful for people that, you know, put their neck on the line. And there's all sorts of complex war questions as Christians for sure, but uh, being in the defense between us and adversaries is commendable always. And so, but, you know, you could tell I remember a lot about Eddie, don't you, can't you? And you know what? Even as obituary, I saw all sorts of errors in it. I should have written it. Um, I wrote a 15-page story of his life to use as a basis for this play, and I don't, it probably will never happen. But you know what? As much as I think Eddie was so cool and I liked him, you know, the memories that I want to retain the most are about Jesus. And I want to stimulate you to think about Jesus in this way. If you were stranded on an island, like in the movie Castaway, and you were all alone, but but you wanted to remember who you were and what you believed, what would you be able to remember about Jesus? And it's a really important question because when you really struggle, that becomes very, very relevant. And so what I like to do is talk about Jesus and how we remember him. The primary sources are, of course we know them, the book of Acts and the Gospels, but I'd like to read a verse. Acts one twenty one. when the apostles are trying to figure out who is going to be able to be the bastion to represent the Christian faith and replace one of the uh, apostles after Judas betrayed Jesus. They said it's necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us from the whole time Lord Jesus was living among us. They need a fact checker base. They have, to, they have to stand beside each other and say, we met him, we were with him for three years, we, we touched him, we heard his teachings, and we are the most reliable reference for our newfound faith on this earth. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this is a large group of witnesses we find out, saw Jesus rose from the dead, it says in verse 3, I passed on what I received you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. 
And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Though most, most of whom were still living, though some have fallen asleep. Wow, well, I mean, that's just really interesting to even know that. that there were 500 people that saw him risen that were part of that original uh, church. That, by the way, Corinthians is the second uh, earliest book in the New Testament, most scholars believe. Um, 2 Timothy 2.8, Paul says to Timothy, Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. But, you know, the only way Timothy would be able to remember is through his mother and his grandmother. That story that came down, and then also from Paul. He wasn't a first-hand witness. We don't have any evidence of anything like that. So really, we're like Timothy. We're depending on the memory of other people. And we're hoping that they're telling the truth, right? So how do you know that they're telling the truth? We're going to cover that in a second. And 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 through 18, Peter writing, and I can tell, my opinion, along a lot of scholars, that this is Peter, very old, is writing. He has a scribe, Silas. He refers to him in 2 Peter as uh, helping him out. Um, but this is Peter telling, kind of giving his last story. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love, or with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard his voice that came from heaven when we were with him on that sacred mountain. And, of course, that's also recorded in some of the Gospels, like Mark. Mark, according to a very early tradition, was Peter's recount written by Mark, as recorded in Rome. Don't know that for sure. But you have first-generation witnesses saying, wait a minute, this is, this is not a, a contraption here. This is the real thing. We saw it. John, in 1 John, talks about touching Jesus. Like, we're really there. We're that close. You know, we know. And this is important. This is really important. I even think about this as a congregation is becoming 25 years old in July. The first missionaries, people uh, like Robin Horton and Reese Nealon and others, arrived this month, 25 years ago. And, you know, you have a great story here, by the way. You have a great story. Great contributions in the big picture. Wrestled through tremendous challenges. All sorts of, you know, spiritual, cultural, emotional wars, paradigm changes, self-reflection. And last, uh, since 2007, the congregation has grown by about 1,400. Um, there will be a great comeback story with this church, but we'll be a very different church than we were this year or 25 years ago. And the thing that provides the continuity for us is Jesus. Men in the future will disappoint us. Men in the future will inspire and encourage us. And we've had both in the past. But we don't know who's going to be around. I don't think we can take charge of us ourselves. And a few months back, I preached a sermon on transformation and the idea of with a butterfly coming from a caterpillar that there is this imaginal cell which takes over all the guts of the caterpillar, rewires it to become a butterfly. Well, Jesus is our imaginal cell. And all the rest of us, we're just a bunch of goo, okay? Our history is goo. 
Uh, tomorrow you'll see, uh, you'll receive a copy of the prologue of uh, about 11 pages of the work from the inception of uh, California all the way through the planting of the church, the development of the West Side, and up to this last year. And uh, I hope you're encouraged to be able to get in touch with your story, but it's interesting fact-checking with people. You know, I've talked to so many people. That the ones who've been most helpful are Reese Neeland, Andy Wenji, Al Baird, and John Thorne, and others. And it's just, you know, getting this stuff. But we are bad at memory as humans. I have told some stories so many times wrong because when I go back and look at the first time I wrote down the story, it's not the same way. It evolves. It gets new wings. It gets colored up, you know. And uh, so it's really good every once in a while to go back, what is the story? So I hope you find what I've written as, as close as we can get up to this point. We'll tweak it if we need to. But the most important thing, that glue that's going to hold us together throughout all time, will be Jesus. And we talked about this two weeks ago, and, and there's no reason to get off the subject. Okay, Jesus is the reason. Luke chapter 1, there's another great verse here. Many have, it says in verse 1, many have undertaken to draw up the account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you. But at the end of verse 4 says, so that you may know the certainty of the things you were talked about. The Greek word for investigated that Luke is using here is autopsy, where we get autopsy from. And it literally means to see for oneself. Luke, a physician, decided to be the one to, I'm going to go find out. I'm going to go to the source. I'm going to talk to the people that know. I'm going to read these other accounts. I'm going to harmonize them. And he tells two stories, Luke and Acts. And it's so interwoven with geographical, historical, literary uh, touch points. It's fascinating to read him. He's, he's my favorite of the Gospels, probably because I'm wired like him. I like to find out for myself. But you know, every once in a while, we're going to all need to find out for ourselves things about Jesus because we're going to be disappointed in life. I had this thing that happened to me in, in 1993 spiritually and emotionally, where I just wanted to give up all leadership, get out of the ministry, I am done, I am out of here, and I was miserable. And people knew I was miserable. People left me alone because I was so miserable. I was miserable to be around. And uh, it was just, I was in a funky place. Matter of fact, uh, we were living in the city, and we were sent to go start a ministry in the south suburbs. It was called the Southland, which began right then and there, uh, get Staten away from us, you know. And it was actually something that got resolved wonderfully years later. We had been hurt by something, and it got so taken care of and everything, but it was one of the best things that have ever happened to me, because I'll tell you what I did. I was miserable, but nothing was working. So what I decided to do is I took all four Gospels, archaeology, um, literary evidence of the first century, Josephus, Philo, things like that, and I decided to do a blow-by-blow trace the footsteps of Jesus from the first time he entered Jerusalem after the Hanukkah, after Lazarus was risen, 
all the way through to the the resurrection and create a harmonized account and get the sense of the ordeal of Jesus. And then it became in me. And it changed my responses. It changed how I reacted to events that were I found unfavorable. And all of a sudden, it, just a matter of a couple of months, I, I, was just under, I was just different. I'm telling you, there's not a book out there that's ever done that for me. And I got a lot of books. There's not a discipling time that's had that level of impact. There's not going out and have a day in the park or watching a movie that's ever done what that project did. Jesus is amazing. I just want to reiterate, Jesus is what it's all about. Amen? So then, let's move on. I want you to think about the two ways that the Christians in the early church kept the memory of Jesus alive. Because we're going to take communion here in a moment. They did not have a Bible collated like we do. There's most likely a lot of people didn't even have one epistle or letter from Paul or a copy of the Gospels. It just wasn't like it back then. A lot of people were not even literate. And so how did they keep the story alive? Well, one of the ways they did is through communion. Another way is through baptism. And the message of communion and the message of baptism, the telling of a story is what early Christians did. They would tell the story, make sure somebody confessed that story to be baptized. And they were more elaborate than we typically are at baptisms because they've got to make sure that they're not baptizing a heretic. Okay? So in Luke chapter 22, verse 19, when they're doing the Passover meal, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me in the future. And in 1 Corinthians 11, when we hear about the Eucharist, which is a, to give thanks, breaking bread, that is based on this Paschal, Passover um, you know, legacy. But Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And Paul quotes him in Luke 11. And so when we take communion, we're trying to remember Jesus. We're not trying to remember uh, a really fun time in our Christian life. There's a lot of great things to remember. But at that time, it's about Jesus. And it's about, you know, the same thing at baptisms. And so I want you to think about some of the... Well, actually, what I'd like to do is read a couple of the first presentations of Jesus in the public atmosphere before we had written Gospels. Okay, the first ever hearing of the story after the fact is in Acts 2. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to you by God through miracle signs and wonders, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know, by the way. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him on the cross, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep a hold on him. This is very inspirational. Imagine the first time you hear it. But you know what? Peter was able to do this sermon 50 days approximately after the death of Jesus. He says in verse 32 of Acts 2, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. So I don't know how to square this with there were 500 brothers still alive, most of them still alive, 20 years later, with Jesus in a scenario where thousands of people were present. The colonnade there can handle at least 10,000 people from what I've read. I don't know how his voice would have carried. 
But there were still a lot of people in Jerusalem at this time. And he said, we're all witnesses of the fact. Now, maybe they're witnesses of some glimpse or some sort of proof. But that's a very bold sermon. That's the first sermon ever describing the events of Jesus. In Acts chapter 3, verse 13, uh, he talks about Jesus again. It says, you handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. Two Sundays ago, we talked about the Greek word archegos used in Hebrews. That's the Greek word. The, the trailblazer, the one who does it all first, that gets on out there and makes it better for people to follow afterwards. Sometimes translated author. And so this is how Jesus is described in the second oratory that we even know about. And then Acts chapter 10. Peter's speaking at Cornelius' household. There's a bunch of people there. And he said that, uh, you know what happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with Holy Spirit and power, and he went around and doing good and healing all those who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. And he goes on. And then Acts 13, Peter, or Paul is speaking, and says, hey, by the way, they found no grounds for anything against Jesus And when they carried all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him out on a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. And they are now his witnesses to our people. This is a powerful way that people are touched through preaching preceding baptism. That's what these were, preaching preceding baptism. And through telling of communion. I hope today that you feel challenged to remember and to beef up your memory. I'm going to give you a couple exercises on a slide here, what you can do to do that. But I want to read somebody's recollection around, probably around 112 A.D., Ignatius. You can kind of tell as he's uh, speaking his view of what happened with Jesus. He does not have a Bible near him. He wrote seven letters, and these are four excerpts homogenized by me into one story, one account, And uh, I think he was in prison, so he's writing from his memory. But here's what he says. Be fully convinced that there is one physician, our God, Jesus Christ, who is both flesh and spirit, truly of the family of David with respect to human descent, son of God with respect to the divine will and human power, unborn yet conceived by Mary and truly born physically of a virgin, according to God's plan, both from the seed of David and the Holy Spirit. God and man, true life and death, baptized by John in order that all righteousness be fulfilled in him, and in order that by his suffering he might consecrate the water who both ate and drank, who really was persecuted, who was truly crucified, being nailed in the flesh for us, and then died under the governorship of Pilate and Herod the Tetrarch. While those in heaven on earth and under the earth looked on who, moreover, really was raised from the dead. When the Father raised him up from the fruit of his divinely blessed suffering, we derive our existence in order that he might raise a banner for the ages through his resurrection and for the saints and faithful people, whether among the Jews or among Gentiles, in the one body of his church. One time I did an exercise at a midweek and had everybody write down their account from their memory of Jesus. It's painfully humbling when we do that. 
if we haven't stayed close to Jesus, if we haven't been reading his Bible. So I think that that would be a good thing to do. We have an advantage today. We have collated and electronic Bibles. If you have a phone, you have a Bible, right? Okay. Uh, we have archaeology and scholarship. And you can do a tour to Israel like uh, Mark and Karen and Trish and I did in 1999. Life-changing. It's like a fifth gospel. It opens up the Bible in ways you never did before. What a privilege we have to be able to do these things. I have some memory-handsome exercises. These are some directions. Number one is, redig the wells of Scripture, especially Daniel, Isaiah, and the Gospels. You do that on your time. You do it just to look for things about Jesus, what he was like. You will be refreshed. Secondly, frequently use the Gospels in small group discussions. When I became a Christian, I was going to a Bible study group where almost every Bible talk was on Jesus or one of his parables. And I so fell in love with that image at that time. It's what the thing that got me to become a Christian. I'm sure that was the case with you too. Open up family discussions, special occasions at least, with an insight about Jesus. I love when people do things to keep the faith alive ritualistically with heart and meaning. Anybody who's ever eaten at the home of Henry Kramer knows before you eat, you do what? Before you pray, you do what? His doxology. We sing a part of a hymn. And it does something. It it, it brings us all together and conjures up our uh, our memory of who it is we serve. Let's make our time special. Let's stay focused on Jesus. Have a Jesus study ready to go in a moment's notice. There's all sorts of Jesus studies. All sorts sorts of them on my hard drive, out there on the internet. You might have your own. Easy to come up with. Personalize it. Make it yours. But have it ready to go. It can be one verse. It can be seven. doesn't matter. But have it ready to go and look for an opportunity to use it. As a matter of fact, set up one ASAP. If we're going to ever reach our area here on the west side, Culver City and Santa Monica and Inglewood and all the way up past Malibu and all of we're going to have to start with Jesus. Our message is not how great the church is, right? Our message is not our website. Okay. We have a lot of great things going for us. Our message is Jesus. Okay. And then lastly, let's pressure Mark Shaw to get the rock ministry going again and have a class on Jesus. Mark, what have you been doing with your time? Okay. I hope that you are drawn to think more about Jesus. As we take communion in just a moment, what I'd like to do is read somebody's writing from the second century, an elder named Melito. And this is what he said. Pay attention. That's what he said. Okay. <laughs> All families of the nations and observe. An extraordinary murder has taken place in the center of Jerusalem. A city devoted to God's law in the city of the Hebrews, in the city of the prophets, and the city thought of as just. And who has been murdered? And who is the murderer? I'm ashamed to give an answer, but give it I must. For if this murder had taken place at night, if it had been slain in a desert place... It would have been well to keep it silent, but it is in the middle of the main street, even in the center of the city, while all were looking on, and the unjust murder of this just person took place. And thus he was lifted upon a tree, and an inscription was affixed, identifying the one who had been murdered. Who was he? It's too painful to tell, but it's more dreadful not to tell. 
Therefore hear and tremble. Because of him for whom the earth trembled, the one who hung the earth in space is himself hanged. The one who fixed the heavens in place is himself impaled. The one who firmly fixed all things is himself firmly fixed to a tree. The Lord is insulted. God has been murdered. The king of Israel has been destroyed by the right hand of Israel. Oh, frightful murder. Oh, unheard of justice. The Lord is disfigured. And he is not deemed worthy of a cloak for his naked body so that he might not be seen exposed. For this reason, the stars turned and fled and the day grew quite dark. In order to hide the naked person hanging on the tree, darkening not the body of the Lord, but the eyes of man. Yes, even though the people did not tremble, the earth trembled instead. And although the people were not afraid, the heavens grew frightened. And although the people did not tear their garments, the angels tore theirs. And although people did not lament, the Lord thundered from heaven. And the Most High uttered His voice, Why was it like this, O Israel? You did not tremble for the Lord, you did not fear for the Lord, you did not lament for the Lord, yet you lamented for your firstborn. You did not tear your garments at the crucifixion of the Lord, yet you tore your garments for your own who were murdered. You forsook the Lord, yet you were not found by Him. You dashed the Lord to the ground, you too were dashed to the ground, and lie quite dead. Probably a reference to what happened 40 years later in Jerusalem. But He rose from the dead. And mounted up to the heights of the heavens, when the Lord had clothed himself with humanity, and had suffered for the sake of the sufferer, had been bound for the sake of the imprisoned, had been judged for the sake of the condemned, had been buried for the sake of those who have been buried. He rose up from the dead, he cried out in a loud voice, Who is it that contends with me? Let him stand in opposition to me. I have set the condemned man free, I gave the dead man life, I raised up the one who had been entombed. Who is my opponent? I, he says, am the Christ. I am the one who destroyed death and triumphed over the enemy and trampled Hades underfoot and bound the strong one and carried off man to the heights of heaven. I, he says, am the Christ. Let's pray. God and Father, it is really rich to hear each other's recollections of the story. Whether it was from Ignatius or Melito or the Apostles, or our own, and even sometimes with our own imperfections and inaccuracies. It's just great to hear the story over and over and over again. Help us find ways to be fresh and just never get into a routine where we just take it for granted. And Father, I know I've done that many times, and I have to go back and redig the wells and get in, con- in, in contact with the story and your son. And uh, help us become the vibrant church we want to be, that you want us to be, through us keeping the memory of Jesus alive in our generation. It's in... His name we pray. Amen.